Right, good morning and welcome to the latest instalment of FIS's Castaway podcast. Uh, this morning is three of us, myself, Alex, here in the London office, Tom in our Singapore office, and Kerry, who is under isolation here in London. Morning, guys. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Not bad. So we'll get cracking with our news articles this morning that we've each selected. Tom, we'll start with yours, which is an article from Bloomberg about uh, Shell and cutting jobs. Uh, yeah, so it follows on from some of the conversations we've been having about big oil, BP's move towards a cleaner future, as it were, uh, and, and how that might impact um, the oil industry moving forward. So it seems that Shell are on a broadly similar path with 9,000 jobs to be cut over the next couple of years uh, or by the end of 2022, um, including some voluntary redundancies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so big cost-saving exercise from Shell due to, to what's happened this year. Um, if you sort of work your way through the article, it seems that the bumper trading profit profits that a lot of the big uh, oil majors have experienced uh, Q1, Q2 this year that have sort of shielded them a little bit um, from the impacts of, of the massive decrease in oil price um, are not being forecasted for the rest of the year. Um, so... I think they are now in sort of not crisis management mode. They've been in that for a while, but it, you know, the, the, it's coming home to roost, as it were. Um, so there's some fairly major restructuring going on. A lot of their sort of punchy expat contracts are being reviewed. Um, and I think uh, moving forward, we can expect to see similar from a lot of other oil majors. So Chevron have announced that they intend to trim 10 to 15% of its global workforce. Exxon is reviewing staffing country by country. And this all stems from that, you know, the big reduction in oil price that we've seen this year. And with the move towards a renewable future, building it back better as the sort of tagline has become off the back of COVID, um, oil is not going to play as big a part as we've been used to. And there's been some fairly major write downs in terms of uh, oil fields. Uh, for all the oil majors moving forward. So it's, um, you know, big, big, big changes um, at the moment. A lot of this is cyclical as well. And speaking to industry people, you know, these moves will take two years to implement. And then if the oil price is back up again at $70, $80 in two years' time, do we still see this sustained move from the majors towards a towards a greener future or will they try and cash in on the higher oil prices? So, you know, it's certainly positive moves from an environmental perspective at the moment, not if you're a shareholder of these companies. No, absolutely not at all. And it's interesting because we've sort of paid a lot of lip service to the the, the job creation possibilities in the renewables sector over the last few years. But, uh, and, and so have these companies, haven't they? Um, they themselves, people like BP, Shell, um, you know, well, I think they have, but uh, the industry has been building up around it without them, and now they're playing catch-up very much to sort of the youth. Yeah, ahead of that curve. Um, so, yeah. yeah. But then, so a question for you guys, um, well, both of you, really. So it's list, it's one of the big FTSE 100 components. It's listed in The Hague. It's also listed uh, on Euronex. Where are the state bailouts for this this company? You know, 9,000 jobs. 9,000 jobs we cut is huge. Um, you know, why aren't the governments getting involved in helping migrate towards renewable uh, energy and helping to save these jobs? Well, I think politically, 
giving money to an oil major to save oil jobs at the moment would probably not wash very well, uh, is the simple answer. No, also, they've got very strong balance sheets. They're able to, you know, they're, I don't think it's quite the same situation as the airlines, which are genuinely fighting for their lives at the moment. Um, yeah, I think the, this is a, it is a forced restructuring and a forced uh, change of business model that has been accelerated by the events of this year. But I think the reality of what's happening is that this probably would have happened over the next few years, maybe the next decade. It's just been brought to a head very, very quickly. Um, and do you see more to come in, in other similar entities? I don't, don't imagine there won't be yet, absolutely. Okay, fair enough. Right, um, we'll move on to the next news story, my, my one, which is from this week's Economist and a bit different, not energy related or commodity related, but it's to do with the problem of EU's golden passport. And this is where uh, an investment into an EU country can allow you to live and work in 27 different countries. An example that they use is the one in Cyprus, where for an investment of 2.2 million euros, roughly $2.6 million, I guess, you simply get a separate passport and that allows you to live and work anywhere in Europe without any issues. Malta runs a similar um, program, as does Portugal. Um, now, this is obviously beginning to rub people up the wrong way as, you know, the sort of strife of COVID-19 uh, is exacerbated. And in a recent speech, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, mentioned that such golden passports uh, are being put on a list of threats to the rule of law in Europe alongside judge nobbling. They phrase it, which is a, which is a not very phrase, a phrase that you use much. All EU countries issue passports for reasons beyond the bog standard naturalisation of those who marry or are local or live in the country. Um, you know, uh, for example, uh, atoning for historic wrongs. Spanish and Portuguese governments have started offering out passports to people of Sephardic heritage, so that's going back five or six hundred years. So to you know, I think to, to simply imply that these passports are given out for economic benefit isn't entirely correct. However, there's a few stats that the article have mentioned. Um, Ireland. Now, Ireland allows anyone with an Irish grandparent to claim Irish citizenship. So in Britain alone, an estimated six million people would qualify for an Irish passport. That's quite substantial ahead of, uh, well, now that the UK is actually out of Europe. Italy is even more generous to its diaspora. Anyone with a male Italian ancestor has a shot and an Italian passport. And along with that, there's no limit. So that goes right back to 1861 when uh, Italy was formed. Um, you can do your own gags about Garibaldi biscuits there, if you know your GTSD history. Um, so, you know, offering citizenship it, it, to the EU, it's, it's a big thing. It means that some people perhaps uh, with perhaps wonky backgrounds and perhaps money that needs investigating can actually apply and successfully live in your Germany's, your France's, um, anywhere within the EU, any one of those 27 countries. I, I don't know how you guys think about that. But we're uh, quite aggressive too, Alex. I mean, in the Italian one, for example, they market that aggressively in the US to Italian Americans, you know, trying to. Everyone in the US claims they've got an Italian or Irish grandparent. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, you can only imagine if the Irish had a similar system like that, you'd have probably every other American in the country apply for it. But, um, but um, if the Cypriots, the Portuguese and the Italians continue to sell property, you know, to, to disagreeable folk who then just simply go and park up in Paris and, and Munich, um, where, do, where does that leave the EU in terms of, you know, justifying their legislation across the 27 countries? 
Uh, this has been this has been an issue since 2015, hasn't it? Oh, well, far before that, but really brought into focus in 2015. So, uh, and this was one of the driving forces behind Brexit, wasn't it? So, uh, you know, it was this fear of uh, of, of freedom of movement um, uh, being abused. Now, perhaps the fear wasn't originally that it would be abused by millionaires with wonky backgrounds moving moving over to uh, to take shelter in the EU, but uh, but you know, this has been a fundamental issue. Of disagreement uh, for for many many years now. Okay, fair enough. Right, well, we'll move on to your story of the week, which is your opinion and your coverage of the U.S. presidential debate last night between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Well, this is an article from CNN Politics uh, that uh, just basically covers hits and misses from the first Trump Biden debate. Um, under hits, they have nothing. They said it was an absolutely awful debate that did absolutely nothing to educate the public about the two candidates and what they would do, given four years to serve as president. Um, in fact, an interesting quote from CNN was calling the debate a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. Um, and that seems to be the consensus view. Um, there were very few highlights to this. Uh, Trump did turn it into a shouting match, um, just slinging insults left, right, and center. Uh, no substantive policy was discussed whatsoever. Uh, the few sort of notable highlights were probably, or lowlights, if you will, were Trump refusing to condemn white nationalists and supremacists, and in fact, telling them to stand by, and also refusing to commit to a peaceful transition of power, um, and telling his supporters to get ready for trouble. Um, other than that, there was really nothing of substance at all to question this. Um, Joe Biden scored a few points about his handling of COVID. I, I think the key thing here is how will this affect the dynamics of the race? Um, I, I can safely say that everyone who watched it, who I've spoken to and all of the newspapers that covered it, uh, are thoroughly disgusted, um, with everything that was done at the debate, uh, on both sides. Um, I think what's key here is that Trump needed this to be a shift in the narrative, um, and it wasn't at all. It was simply another new low. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, one must ask, you know, did this do anything to help him win back the moderate voters that he would need in order to win this election? Um, it's highly doubtful that it did. Uh, we'll see what the polls say. Um, and so at this point, you know, you're left wondering, a, does this change the dynamics of the race at all? No, probably not. And B, uh, should there even be another debate? You know, given the, the, the utter uselessness of it um, and the incredibly distasteful subject matter in it, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if Biden simply refuses to debate any further. Um, New series of celebrity death match. Yeah, it really was. It was just a, a, a terrible reality TV show which shouldn't be surprising to us at this point. But, um, but there was a yeah. quote from the FT this morning where Rana uh, Furaha said, this isn't helping us understand anything we didn't already know. It's not helping democracy. It was just an assault on the censors. Nobody won this. We all lost. Yep. That, <laughs> I would say that's a, a very accurate representation of it. Is that the last four years or last night? That's last <laughs> 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 And how did the markets react to, to the, the debate? Um, well, the markets in the U.S. have not had a chance to react because they occurred late last night. Uh, so uh, we shall see in a couple of hours uh, upon the New York Open uh, 
what the markets think of it. I, I, su- I suspect they're not going to react very strongly at all. For all the drama in it, this fundamentally doesn't change the dynamics of the race. Most bookmakers are still giving Biden about a 70 to 75 percent chance of winning this. The, future, the futures are off quite hard, though, because I think it has well, about 0.75 of a percent, um, which in the last few months is, is not much at all. But um, historically, after the first debate, markets have gone up uh, for the last five or six elections. I, I seem to remember reading this morning. Uh, they're off quite a lot this morning. Basically, I think what it has highlighted is that the threat of a a um, a messy handover or no handover at all is is possibly quite real. Um, oh yeah. Even though the Republicans have come out as a party and said we wouldn't stand by, you know, Trump did highlight this again last yeah, night. I think, I think that times in the last year. year on quite a number of subjects. Um, yeah. and, and the reality is that there's nothing they can do if Trump tells his supporters to, uh, to go out in the streets and fight quite a number of the more extreme ones probably will. So, uh, so um, you know, I think we're looking at a, a very high chance or an increasing chance of a, of a messy, potentially violent handover, yeah, which, uh, which isn't helping anyone's confidence, is it? Yeah, that's, uh, um, that, that's not ideal. Well, less than ideal, really, isn't it? To, no, no. Uh, the largest economy and what we used to view as uh, the world's largest democracy. And, but, yeah. There we go. All right. Well, moving on from that, just something we wanted to cover um, before we moved on to our sort of market updates is the Asian phenomenon, as we know, as, as uh, Golden Week. Kerry, you've lived in Asia for a long time, and Tom, you're currently living there. Could you perhaps talk myself and our listeners through what this happens? Is it a rest for people to reattack the markets, you know, to come back up with a plan, or is it simply a public holiday where people let their hair down? But the markets will be quiet over the next week. Is that right? Um, I think it depends on the market, and it also depends on the context of that market. Uh, in my experience, uh, if it's a good time for people to take a break from the market and they and they feel it's not going to move too much, then uh, then everyone does step back and treat it as a, a break, particularly on the mainland. Um, however, uh, I'm not sure that is the case just at the moment, certainly not on the, the freight markets. Um, so uh, so I, I would expect this year for, uh, for quite a few of the... Uh, the Chinese to continue working. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it normally is a, in terms of onshore China, it is a, a full-on ten-day shutdown essentially. So everyone is on on holiday, uh, properly on holiday, and it is observed. Um, that said, um, from the markets that we're involved in, there's normally quite a lot of action during that week because liquidity is thin. It's a you know, markets can move quite aggressively on not very much volume. Uh, and that, you know, given the volatility of this year already, given the volatility that we saw last year in some of the dry bulk markets, that certainly has been the case of the last few years that, you know, you are able to, or you do get some some big moves during this period just because the market is thin. Um, so it's tools down for China, but certainly not for the rest of the world. Okay. Very interesting. All right. Well, we'll move on to a bit of some market recaps. And the one I've got for you guys this morning is from our fertilizer desk from Andrew Manor, uh, our resident Australian. And this information plus more sort of his very good insight can actually be found on our app FIS Live. And the bit, the tidbit that I've sort of chosen from, from his report today is about the Indian tender announcement and how that's been delayed. Um, He writes, a new Indian tender was widely expected to be announced last week, but came under doubt as the week progressed and didn't eventuate. 
The basis for the delay included a slowdown in domestic urea sales during August and September, combined with the significant import volumes already scheduled, as well as funding issues within the Department of Fertilizers. Progress was made Tuesday, however, with the Department of Fertilizers announcing they will lift restrictions on fertilizer subsidy payments, which has allayed the potential funding issues. As a result, a tender announcement seems closer once more, expected either this week or next. FIS expects a new tender announcement will provide support to the market. However, prices likely to remain under pressure in the interim as buyers await the confirmation of further Indian demand. Um, two things I just want to point out about that. First of all, this, is, uh, this opinion is formed on information we see in the market day to day and mark information that's widely available in the public domain. And I will also go and question Andrew about the word eventuate. I'm not sure where he's learning. <laughs> <that. laughs> Interesting one. Um, any thoughts on that fertilizer information, guys? <laughs> I think working for the Department of Fertilizers sounds fun. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, the civil service, uh, there's a whole range of gags you can do there. All right, well, let's interesting one. We'll, we'll move on from that. Um, Tom, can you talk to us a bit about the iron ore market this week? Sure. Um, so it's been a couple of weeks uh, since we've touched base on this, uh, as we were absent last week. So just in terms of the price touch points that we've been using uh, to to sort of as a, as a reference point, uh, Wednesday 16th, the October contract was 118 and a quarter. September 23rd was 112 uh, and today we're back up at 121 basically um, so that gives you an idea of the volatility that we've been seeing in iron ore over the last couple of weeks uh, and makes me rather glad that I sit on this side of the table rather than on the the trading side at the moment because it's uh, it's pretty tricky um, we've seen a real rally a lot of that 121 that we're looking at on the October contract today has eventuated today uh just talking about golden week um there has been a bit of a a close a, a push into the close before golden week th this afternoon so there's no more chinese sessions at all the lunchtime session today was the last session um there was a big big move down last week and there's some big big short positions put on i think some profit takings happened this afternoon going into the close so there's been Bit of bit of closing out going on, which has caused the market to 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 rally as people have bought back their shorts. Um, but it had been a, a case of the market actually correcting as we'd been suggesting that it would. Uh, a lot of that coming from the demand side. Steel demand has really dried up um, over the last few weeks. Uh, and speaking to um, our analyst up in China, he th he thinks that steel demand for this year is is gone um he, he, we, we may uh we we may see a little bit of a pickup as you know just just business picking up after golden week but but effectively we're we're we should um expect the market to to come off from where it is currently it seems like an artificial high again um in terms of other than the sort of short squeeze into the close today in terms of the things that we've been been noting um the port inventory that we talk about quite regularly, um, <clears throat> that's up quite a lot at the moment. Um, so up 1.2 million tonnes week on week. And uh, daily evacuation, 
uh, of three million tons down uh, 47,000 tons week on week. So inventory is building uh, at port, which normally suggests that you know we should should be seeing some some movement to the downside. Um, Australian ports uh, are chocker and uh, and deliveries from Australia and Brazil are up quite considerably. So there is a, a big big movement of new iron ore tonnage coming in. A lot of that has been uh, due to these ships that are sat at port waiting to discharge that we've been talking about consistently for the last couple of months as well. The number now of dry bulk vessels waiting to discharge, broadly speaking, iron ore is 150 ship, 56, bleh, 157 ships at port, uh, and that's up 15 week on week. Um, in terms of some other bits and bobs that we're noting, um, Vale who we've talked about a lot over the last few months. Uh, they've had a part of their mining program closed down for three months uh, this week, um, which might have driven some of the positive action today as well, but that, that was news earlier this week. But um, that's an impact of almost a million pelletized tons of iron ore from Brazil. Um, and the other thing, I think because of the, the slight rebound in, in price, uh, that we've seen off the lows sort of a week and a half ago. Um, markets have sort of shifted now to, to a preference of mid-grade iron ore. And it was that tightness in the mid-grade iron ore earlier this year that really caused the price to spike. But there was significant steel demand to back that up as well. I think this time around, the steel demand isn't there. Um, so I don't expect that sort of tightness in, in the mid-range finds to, to drive the, the price strength that we saw yeah. this year. Okay, great. Um, any comments there from you, Kerry, on, on what Tom's reported? Seems like Brazil's less of a flashpoint at the moment than it was perhaps a month or two ago. I, I think sentiment-wise, everyone was very convinced at this point that Vale is doing an overall good job of increasing their production. So a relatively small closure ordered by the occasional sort of state judges, you know, for, for safety grounds, which, which has been happening on and off, you know, since, since last year's disaster in Brazil, um, you know, is not quite the swing factor it was for sentiment that perhaps it was maybe six months ago, um, is my personal opinion. Um, the overall narrative of increasing production out of Brazil remains the same. Um, but what would you say, Tom? Uh, I, I, agree. I think the interesting story coming out of Brazil uh, at the moment is their plans for increased tonnage in 2021. Um, you know, if they deliver on that, as they're suggesting, that's a, that is a material increase to global iron ore supply. Uh, exactly. I'm, I imagine you'll probably talk about it in the freight piece a little bit uh, in a minute, Kerry. But if they do deliver on what they're suggesting, there, there is a big, big increase in global supply of iron ore coming next year, um, which you, you would expect to, to weigh on iron ore price over the, over the medium term. Yeah. Um, okay. Agreed. So should we move on to your dry freight commentary then, please? Well, yeah, sure. It's been it's been a very big week on dry, um, with the cakes in particular spiking uh, from a spot five TC average level of uh, seventeen thousand two two nine this time last week to twenty three eight one three. So over sixty five hundred dollars or thirty eight percent jump uh, week on week, um, and those front month. Cape FFA is also spiked, not quite as much as the spot, interestingly enough, jumping around $5,000 to uh, 25250 for the October. Um, as of yesterday's close, while well, the back end has been a lot more sluggish, 
jumping only around $2,000 on the week um, for the Q4 uh, to 2165. So a lot of this knob and deck being held back a little bit. Um, that's the first time this year we've seen the Q4 above 20, though, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. So that's a big step. Um, you know, a lot of this Cape demand, as you just mentioned, Tom, is obviously driven by Brazil. Uh, Vale increased their output substantially again uh, in terms of week-on-week uh, -week and month-on-month -month output. However, uh, one interesting point is there appeared to be a shortage of Vale Max and VLOC tonnage, according to IHS Market Commodities at Sea data. And so what that did was effectively create a surge in demand for the Cape sizes uh, in terms of the spot chartering market. Uh, Vale was heard yesterday to take seven capes for October dates, ranging from around 20 bucks up to uh, 20 and three quarters. Uh, and there are rumors they may even have taken more quietly. Um, meanwhile, we've seen good demand on that C5, West Australia, China route as well, which has pushed rates up there uh, to about uh, $8.50 on the spot yesterday. Um, so, you know, overall, Brazil has been driving a lot of this, a lot of this spike. Um, the Panamax is not quite as exciting this week. Um, it has to be said, the spot 4TC average uh, week on week up about 650 bucks to 11,180, uh, while the front month paper stayed roughly flat, actually declining very, very slightly to around uh, the 12,000 range. It's been trading either side of that for over a week now. Um, the Panamaxes have been largely driven by green ex-US Gulf, as we've discussed before. Um, and while that continues to look positive with some very punchy fixtures being done uh, for ships delivery Far East for those U.S. golf rounds, I think $13,000 was heard yesterday, basis delivery Korea. Um, I think, uh, you know, the rest of the market seems fairly imbalanced. And so the Panamaxes are struggling to jump the way the Capes have. Um, in terms of the Golden Week outlook, this is why I think we might see the Chinese continue to work on the freight markets over Golden Week. Um, those capes look like they will continue to spike on the front end um, in the short term, definitely given the rates Valley has been paying uh, for the C3 recently um, for October and split dates. Um, uh, having said that, you know, uh, again, worries about the congestion easing. You mentioned the congestion, Tom, up to about 157 vessels, I believe you said, waiting off China now um, to discharge. Um, if that eases a bit, that's what a lot of people are looking towards. And I think that's what's capping those rates on the knob and the deck right now, keeping that Q4 suppressed. So um, in terms of the Panamaxes, it's actually a slightly different story. A lot of people expecting the owners, I think, to perhaps blink uh, this week and try and get their ships fixed as China moves into Golden Week. Um, and so the Panamaxes look likely to remain steady or even a touch negative uh, on the spot. If the Cape rates keep running away and Panamax doesn't particularly move, do you think we get into a Cape split range or is it still... I mean, everyone loves to talk about that, right? Certainly sentimentally, certainly sentimentally, that should, in theory, drag up the Panamax soon um, in terms of we'll, we'll be approaching that Cape split range very soon if you take a two-to-one ratio to mean Cape split range. Um, in reality, I think we all know that, you know, in, in physical practice, it's a lot harder to split a cape than uh, than uh, than people tend to assume it is. So, uh, so whether that actually happens in practice, not certain. But you're right. If the capes continue to jump, the Panamaxes will start to get dragged up on the back of that sentiment, that splitting sentiment. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, that's very interesting. Um, gentlemen, I think we might wrap it up there for this week. Uh, 
the relief that Chris has back to organise us all is palpable. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Episode. Um, but if there's nothing else to add, we'll wrap it up. And uh, thank you very much.